Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Truth and Justice Reply Brief. In today's episode, I'm going to be replying to the prosecutors' part 10 of their Anand Syed analysis. In part 10, Brett and Alice are breaking down Jay Wilde's trial testimony. Now here's the thing. Jay spent over five days on the witness stand. So as you can imagine, an hour-long podcast doesn't really dig deep into the details. But that wasn't really the point of this episode, or the series for that matter. Part 10 of their series is kind of the glue that holds the guilty narrative together. For nine episodes, Brett and Alice have breezed by problems in the state's case. They've twisted, manipulated, and straight up changed the record to fit their narrative. And at this point in their coverage, a lot of listeners were finding themselves confused. All these times and places that don't seem to make sense, but you're told that they do make sense. And if you slow down and try to piece things together, you realize that's impossible. But every time you start to feel that way, these two professional prosecutors tell you that this is all normal. And every other possible theory that you've considered has been shot down, laughed at, and disregarded as conspiracy theory. Those of you who went into their series convinced of Adnan's innocence were very likely shaken by this point. And if you weren't by now, this is the episode that convinced many, many people that Adnan was guilty when it first aired. But there's still that one lingering thing that so many were still holding on to. Three words. Tap, tap, tap. For anyone that doesn't know, mostly Zach, I touched on this in the last episode. During Jay's second recorded interview, every time you hear him make a mistake and go off script, in the audio recording you can hear a tapping. Jay messes up, you hear tap, 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 and he says, oh, sorry, then he corrects his mistake. Like I mentioned in the last episode, you can even catch Jay at one point saying what he missed. Oh, sorry, I missed something. Top spots. And sure enough, when you look at the Jay's chronology document, the document that was supposedly created from this interview, you can see that the top spots were the bullet points on that document that was, in my opinion, quite clearly created before the interview and was being used as a script. The credit for catching the tap, tap, tap goes to Susan Simpson. She noticed in the transcript some of the things that I was pointing out. Jay seeming to have odd reactions. But since you can't read pauses in a transcript, she went to the audio to hear what was going on. And there it was. Jay is reading through the script. He misses a line or messes something up. And you can actually hear McGillivary tapping the script. 
probably with a pen, to get him back on track. Tap, tap, tap. Oh, sorry, I missed it. Top spots. Now, most of you know all about the taps, and it's a pretty damn impressive and revealing find by Susan. This episode by the prosecutors aims to make that tapping discovery into a joke. There's very little new information in this one. It's essentially an hour of explaining away changes in Jay's stories. Mostly pretending like they don't exist and minimizing the few that are acknowledged as just minor shifts in time. And the classic MO of the prosecutors. Lawyers explaining anything you find problematic as perfectly normal for experts like themselves. If you listen to their episode, and look, I know most of you don't want to for a variety of reasons, ranging from just not liking them to not wanting to give them any downloads, and I get it, and also, you're not wrong. But the reason I keep suggesting you listen is simple. It's so you can understand how so many people were duped by them. Through this series, Brett and Alice managed to change the narrative in Hay and Adnan's case. They did some serious damage to the pressure that was being put on the state's attorney's office to actually reinvestigate and find Hay's real killer. They empowered the guilty crowd, swayed many to believe that Adnan is guilty, and left many others in a place where they no longer wanted to engage in the fight. My purpose is to take that power back, to set the record straight, share the actual truth, and here's the important part, arm you with the truth so that you have the facts to engage the side that is so desperately trying to stop justice from being served. In order to do that, I think it's imperative that we understand their playbook. Learn not only how they swayed the masses, but also how to counter the fiction with actual facts. So if you do listen to their part 10, you're going to hear them warp your sense of what's important into petty nonsense. Do not be fooled. And with that, let's dive right into it. So the episode begins with Brett explaining what the tapping theory is, and then we go right into their usual pattern. Alice jumps in, she's chuckling, letting you know that you're being silly if you believe this. Then she reminds you that she and Brett are experienced lawyers, and then she gets right into explaining that how, as a lawyer, she knows that this whole tapping situation is ridiculous. None of this is by accident. It took me a few times through their coverage, but I've identified a clear pattern of how they operate. I've been cluing you into this for weeks now. Present your theory in a dismissive way. Give a little laugh to let you know that what you believe is a joke. Then establish authority by reminding you of their expertise. And then explain, as experts, that not only is what you believe a ridiculous idea, but even if it were true, it's actually perfectly normal. Trust us, we're lawyers. The question is, is this the police creating this story so that they can convict Adnan? I don't know if you have any thoughts. I'm happy to just continue I, talking about it. No, <laughs> I, I, I was trying to think if we wanted to talk more about the tapping before I dove into it. But if only, <laughs> just from personal experience, we'll get into this actual interview and what you hear or don't hear and whether there's tap, tap, tap. But just as one lawyer to another, Brett. Boy, do I wish I could be so good as the alleged, you know, coaching that is happening here as to be able to control my witnesses that I've been able to coach with taps. And I say that in complete honesty. Now, for the next 15 minutes or so, they take kind of an odd approach. That proved to be effective, but I can't even put my finger on if what's happening here is dishonesty or genuine ignorance. And what I mean is that, per their usual MO, 
Brett and Alice spend an exorbitant amount of time explaining to you just how normal it is for a witness to be led or coached, but they do so by describing how they prep witnesses to testify at a trial. I have to believe that they know the very distinct difference between trial prep and a fact-finding interview by law enforcement prior to charges being filed. So remember where we're at at this point in the story. And by the way, we're talking about Jay's second interview here. Adnan has been arrested, but not indicted. And Jay has yet to be charged with anything. In Jay's second official recorded interview, the one with the taps that we covered in the last episode, McGillivary is supposed to be trying to figure out exactly what happened. This is a fact-finding interview. He's not outlining and cleaning up a story or narrative for trial testimony. He's gathering evidence so that he can present the facts of what happened to the prosecutor's office. So that's the first thing you need to realize when you listen to their part 10. Their entire premise is false. The methodology they use to convince you that it's perfectly normal for a detective to direct a witness to tell a story a certain way is to liken that practice to a trial lawyer prepping a witness for testimony. Those two situations could not be more different. Coaching or prepping a witness for trial is a very normal thing, whether it's a defense attorney or a prosecutor. They do not want to put a witness on the stand unless they know ahead of time what they're going to say. As most of you know, I've testified in court and depositions several times, and in every occasion, I was prepped by the attorney that was putting me on. Now, in my case, I'm happy to say that I've only ever dealt with honest lawyers. They wanted to know how I would answer certain questions, and they never suggested that I answer differently on the stand. At most, they asked if they asked the question differently if they would get a different response. And one thing they did do on occasion was eliminate some questions. In one example, I was testifying as an expert witness in a lawsuit regarding firefighter training. In prep, the plaintiff's attorney asked me a question. They didn't like my answer because they thought it would harm their case, and after a short discussion, they decided that they just wouldn't ask that question. And again, that's perfectly normal. Once you get to the trial stage, the prep work is done to best position yourself to win in court. That's supposed to be done by figuring out how to approach the facts of the case in front of the jury. But what Ritz and McGillivary were supposed to be doing in Jay's second recorded interview was figuring out what actually happened. Again, I've said it three times. It's a fact finding interview, not trial prep. What should be happening is they should be confronting Jay with the evidence that conflicts with the story he told them in the first interview and asking him to explain the discrepancies. That does not involve writing a script for him and directing him to read from it, correcting him every time he gets something wrong. If you haven't done so, go to our website and read the second interview transcript. Maybe even listen to my last episode again. And you'll see clear as day that the narrative given in that interview does not come from Jay. It comes from McGillivary. He is constantly inserting elements into Jay's story. And we know that he was inserting the information to fit with the cell phone data. As I mentioned last week, aside from all the obvious instances where Jay's apologizing and we hear the tapping, the smoking gun was the added trip to Christie's house. That trip was impossible for a bunch of reasons. But we know that McGillivary had the Dorchester Road cell tower misplaced on his map. And because of that, he had Jay change his story to fit the incorrect location. That is proof positive that the detectives were not trying to draw information out of Jay, but instead they were feeding information to him to create their narrative. 
So that's the first thing for you to understand when you're listening to their episode. Their entire premise of leading and coaching Jay being perfectly normal is complete bullshit. Fact-finding interviews and trial prep are not even close to the same thing. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff that is why i'm such a big fan of chumba casino chumba casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere with daily bonuses that should brighten your day a little actually a lot so sign up now at chumbacasino.com that's chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus Next up, Brett and Alice attack the notion that Susan Simpson discovered anything important with the tapping on the audio. Most of this episode is spent reading segments of the trial transcript where the idea of the police giving Jay information to get him to change his story was testified to in front of the jury. And here are some of the examples that they cite. First up is Detective McGillivary. On direct examination, he was asked why he interviewed Jay a second time on March 15th. McGillivary responded, that he had obtained the cell phone records from Adnan's phone. Now, Brett frames this as McGillivary making clear to the jury that Jay's second statement was created based on the cell phone record. But that is not what he actually said. He said that he took Jay for a ride and compared his statement to the cell records, and they, quote, were able to narrow things down. He started to recall things better, end quote. Now, First of all, the ride didn't happen during Jay's second statement. The notes for that ride are up on the website, and the ride-along happened three days after Jay gave his second recorded interview. But the greater point here regarding the way the prosecutors presented things in this episode is that they're conflating the police creating a timeline based on the cell phone records and having Jay read it from a script with testimony that looking at the cell records helped Jay to narrow things down and he, quote, started to recall things better. End quote. This whole episode is a mindfuck if you're not paying really close attention. Brett just keeps reading off sections of the transcript that in no way are exposing to the jury that the police led Jay into this narrative, but then he very confidently gives you the old, see, this wasn't a secret at all. You just heard McGillivary admit it to the jury. But again, that's not at all what's happening. What McGillivary is testifying to is that Jay had a few minor things wrong in the first interview. But when he confronted him with the records, it helped jog his memory. 
And he makes excuses like Jay not mentioning some of the calls because he was worried about getting people in trouble that he was buying drugs from. It's all smoke and mirrors. If you read the testimony, and even if you only listen to the parts of the testimony that Brett and Alice quote, you'll see that none of this was a hit against the prosecution. It actually bolstered their case and made it seem legit and believable. Jay just got some details wrong the first time because it had been too long and he was trying to protect people. But luckily, the cell phone records helped to refresh his memory. That's what the jury heard. Now, Alice jumps in at this point to explain again how normal this is. But if you listen to what she's saying, she's not describing what actually happened here. The thing she says is normal is not what happened. She said that this kind of thing happens all the time. A witness gives a statement that results in some leads. Then you get more information, in this case the cell records, and then you go back and confront the witness with any discrepancies. And she's right. That is normal. But that is not what happened. Nowhere in these interviews do you hear the detectives confronting Jay with anything. They turn the tape on and Jay comes out with a brand new fucking story. A different story. A completely different story that now makes an attempt at lining up with certain calls on the log. What you hear is prompting and correcting. Then we went to my house. Oh, oh, wait. Tap, tap, tap. I missed something. Top spots. Or you have two cars. Or you were dropping them off at school for some event? That is not what confronting a witness with discrepancies sounds like. That is leading the witness into saying what you want him to say. So the scenario Alice is describing in their episode should sound something more like this. You told us last time that after you picked Adnan up at track practice, you went to McDonald's and that you were there eating when the police called him. Well, I'm looking at the cell phone records and I know that's not true. You couldn't have been at McDonald's. Why did you lie? And where were you actually? That's what confronting someone with inconsistency sounds like. And that's what Alice is describing. The only problem is that's not even close to what was going on. Let me quote here something Alice says that is the exact opposite of the truth in this case. She's referring to Jay in his second interview. Quote, It's not like he's reading off a script of what he did that day. Rather, he's giving independent information that means nothing to the police. Write these phone records without Jay kind of extrapolizing, this phone call was to a marijuana dealer, this call was to so-and-so, this is when we were doing this, I was nervous at this time. Without him kind of adding on his commentary to those records, they don't really mean that much. We see this all the time. It's not nefarious. It's good investigative work. End quote. Yeah, well, the problem is that he is reading off a script. We have the script. Jay's chronology in the police file. And we know it was written before Jay was interviewed because we can see when he gets something out of order or misses something, he always apologizes. We hear the taps, and then he goes back and restates what's written on the script. He puts it back into the correct order. Now look, this isn't going to be a long episode because like I said in the beginning, they're not adding any new information on this one. The entire episode is nothing but a spin game. They spent an hour trying to invalidate the work that Susan Simpson did by making you think that all of the witness coaching and coercion she discovered had all already come out in open court, and it's nothing new. And most importantly, that the jury all knew about it. 
I'm going to give you one more example of how Alice uses the trial transcript to apparently demonstrate how the jury heard all about the police leading Jay's story. But as you're going to hear, that's not at all what McGillivary was saying. And in fact, before you listen to this little clip, I want you to remember back to several episodes ago. I told you way back then to put a pin in the fact that Ritz and McGillivary received Adnan cell records and then the cell site locations from AT&T on February 22nd. Remember that? That is a verified fact. It's in the case file. And in part five of their series, Brett and Alice even told you that the police received the cell site data five days before Jay's first interview. I told you then that there will come a time when they will pretend that that never happened. This is that time, or at least the beginning of that time. They're going to continue to do this throughout the rest of their series. But in just a second, you're going to hear Alice quoting McGillivary's testimony, where he's going to say that he obtained the cell data much later than he actually did. And in an upcoming episode, Brett and Alice will run with this and tell you that there's no way Jay's story could have come from the police because they didn't have the cell data before his interview. So again, don't forget, this data was received by Ritz and McGillivary on February 22nd, five days before Jen's recorded interview, which occurred before Jay's first recorded interview. And also don't forget that Brett and Alice have already acknowledged this and told you about it five episodes ago. Now what actually changes between Jay's first and second interview is that the detectives created a map of the coverage areas so that they could build a story that fit. It was on that map that they misplaced the Dorchester Road Tower. Now, listen to this. Here's how the jury absolutely knew that McGillivary was leading Jay in his second interview. Part of going through the trial transcript is to show you that all of this kind of conspiracy theory was absolutely explored at trial. And it didn't stop there either, because on redirect, the state goes into it even more, attempting to recast what the defense attorney has suggested was coaching as using the new records to corroborate Jay's general timeline. So the prosecution asked, and after that, but prior to the second conversation with Jay Wiles, what specific information did you have to subpoena again from the AT&T wireless company? Well, we had to send the subpoena along with a court order in order to get the cell site information that coincides with each of the numbers. Question, and is that column in States Exhibit 34C? It is. And evaluating the first statement of Jay Wiles and going back for the second time, was that new information important as to why you went back to talk to him? Answer, it most certainly was. Then the prosecution asked, and would it be fair to say that it was important for you to see if this independent evidence could corroborate important parts of his statement? And he answered, yes. The prosecution then asked, and after you got the second statement and you began comparing it back to the cell site information that you received based on telephone calls made or received by the defendant's cell phone, did you in fact see a pattern of corroboration then between the cell phone information and Jay Wiles's statement. Yes. That's what the jury heard. This is such a bizarre tactic, but strangely it seemed to work on a lot of people. I mean, hats off to Brett and Alice. They actually read to you exactly what was said in front of the jury, but then told you that it meant something completely different than what you just heard. 
So what you heard testified to was that the cell records were used to corroborate Jay's, quote, general timeline after he gave his second interview. That's what the jury heard. Jay gave a story. Things didn't add up. McGillivary pulls the cell site locations that he already had since February 22nd. He has Jay come back in for a second interview where he's no longer trying to protect Patrick and Christy. And that story was then corroborated by the cell records. Corroborated is a pretty strong word. They made it sound like Jay gave an independent account of what happened, and then that account was compared to and corroborated by cell records. In no way was the jury ever made aware of the fact that Jay's chronology document was created before the interview by detectives using cell site locations. And that is what the tap, tap, tapping was proving. They keep diminishing it and making it sound like some little conspiracy theory, like, oh, you heard a tap. It is evidence of a grander conspiracy. It is evidence that that document already existed before the interview. That's the point. The jury was not made aware that Jay was prodded and prompted constantly throughout that interview to read from that script. And they most certainly did not know that you can actually hear the tapping on the script every time Jay missed something. The jury was told that Jay's story was corroborated by the cell phone records, when the truth is that his story was created based on those cell records. And now, let me show you how Brett sums all of this up. So something Alice said earlier, I think, is important here. All of this is being put in front of the jury. It wasn't a mystery to the jury that the police were using the records that they had to confront Jay and adjust his statement. And in fact, the defense spent a good amount of time with two different witnesses going into this. Now, could they have spent even more time on this going into the differences between Jay's first and second statement? Yes, maybe they should have. You can you can criticize them for that if you want to. But it is unquestionably the case that the jury was well aware that the police confronted Jay with this cell data that they had retrieved and that it resulted in Jay's story shifting to match it. If they were hiding it by tapping at the time, they certainly were hiding it when they got to the jury. But the problem for the defense is that much of this is just the specific time that stuff happened. It doesn't change the story itself. Jay's initial statement to the police before they would have had this information and before they were tapping on the table contains significant touch points that never change. Jay gets a call from Adnan to pick him up while Jay is at Jen's house. He drives to meet Adnan where he pops the truck and there is Hay. They drop the car off at the I-70 parking ride. Afterwards, Jay takes Adnan to school so he can be seen at practice. He then picks him up. Adnan got a call from the cops saying Hay was dead. Adnan freaked out. They buried her body in Leakin Park. They dumped the car where Jay would take the police to find it. And during the struggle, Hay had kicked off the windshield wiper thing, as Jay would describe it which would indeed be found dangling from the steering column. The timeline may change, but the location is set. It's kind of like a song where Jay has provided the lyrics and the cops are providing the beat. And to the extent that they are changing things, it really is just moving sometimes here and there. They do add some things. Christy Vinson's trips is one of them. Jay is going to say, he's going to testify about this, and he's going to say essentially, 
look, I, I didn't want to get Christy involved. And I think if you want to criticize Christina Gutierrez for not diving into this more, I think you have to remember she was well aware that her biggest problem is Jen and Jay's first statement. So it, it does not help her as much as people want to focus on it now. It doesn't help her as much at trial to knock this second statement. All it really shows is that Jay is willing to shift his story to make the police happy, but she really has to get it, that first statement by Jay and the statement by Jen. So to me, and I know people think this is a big deal, and look, if you want to think that the police shouldn't have done that or they should have been more open about it or instead of tapping on the table, they should have, I don't know, said something to make it clear on the tape that we are now showing him the records. Fine. That's a, that's a fine criticism, as we said last time. If there had been a lawyer in the room with Jay, that would have taken care of a lot of this stuff. But it's not a big secret. It wasn't a big secret that got uncovered 15 years after Adnan was convicted. It was something everybody knew about and something that, in fact, had been brought up to the jury. So everybody knew about it. Nothing to see here. All right, we're going to take a quick break here. After the break, I'm going to briefly address Brett's characterization of the changes between Jay's first and second interviews right after this. Brett says that the only thing that changed between Jay's interviews was some minor timing changes. This all leads into what will become their final theory that Jay and Jen both told the same, quote, basic story. So I want to quickly go through some of the actual changes, not the times. I don't expect people to remember dates and times. If you've been listening to me for a long time, you know that I have always said that. Generally, people aren't staring at their watches and making notes of exact times. But places and experiences, those are things that I do expect people to remember. Those are our anchors. So here we go. Here's some of the changes between the interviews that are not timing changes. In the first interview, Jay says that he was shopping with Adnan on the day of the murder during school when Adnan told him that he was going to kill Hay. But he also says that they discussed it the night before during the 18-second phone call. Those are two very specific experiences. Had a phone call the night before. They talked about him killing Hay. And then they're shopping on the day that the murder happens. And Adnan says he's going to kill her. But in the second interview, that shopping trip was on a completely different day. It was before that. And that's as close as we come to just timing issues. But again, it's an experience. Something he did on the day. A conversation he had on the day of the murder that completely flip-flops the next time he's interviewed. And then we have the come get me call. The first time, Jay says that the call came into the cell phone while he was at Jen's house. Adnan told him to meet him on a strip on Edmondson Avenue. Those are experiences and places. Call came in to the cell phone. He was sitting at Jen's, and he was told to go to Edmondson Avenue. In the second interview, the come get me call is a total mess. If you go back and read the transcript, it couldn't be clearer that Jay's not sure what he's supposed to say, and he's equally confused by McGillivary's prompting. Ultimately, he says that the come get me call came in on Jen's landline. But the whole story's jibber-jabber. He says first he and Jen went for a ride. During that ride, he told Jen that Adnan was going to kill Hay. Then he said Adnan called the cell phone three times, once to see if the phone was on, then 
Adnan called so that Jay could tell Adnan that Jay was at Jen's house. Uh, and then a third call to the cell phone. Then, when Adnan hadn't called him by 340 to tell him to come get him, Jay leaves Jen's house, but wait for it. And then Adnan finally calls him on Jen's landline. That's never reconciled in Jay's second interview. The fact that he says he left before the come get me call came, but also that the come get me call came on Jen's landline while he wasn't there. Moving on, in round one, Jay says that he meets Adnan on the strip on Edmondson Avenue. And that's where the trunk pop happens. They're standing on the corner having an argument, and they're drawing attention from all of the other people who are around. But in round two, he meets Adnan on the other side of town in a remote part of the Best Buy parking lot. And that's where the trunk pop happens, and there's no one around. In round one, Jay follows Adnan to the parking ride where they ditch Hay's car, and Adnan doesn't take anything out of the car. He just gets out of the car and gets into his own. In round two, same story, except in this version, Adnan spends some time taking a bunch of stuff out of Hayes' car, including, and very specifically, his track bag. In interview one, after ditching Hayes' car, they drive to the cliffs at Patapsco State Park and they smoke a blunt. In interview two, after ditching the car, Adnan talks to a girl from Silver Springs and puts Jay on the phone. Then they call Jay's dealer, Patrick, to buy some weed, but he doesn't answer. Jay leaves a four-minute voicemail for him. Then they go back to the strip and buy some weed from a corner dealer. Then they drive to Patapsco and smoke weed at the cliffs. In interview one, as the sun is setting, he and Adnan leaves the cliffs and Jay takes Adnan back to school. In interview two, same thing, but this time he's more specific. He takes Adnan back to school and drops him off at the front entrance. And he says that is so that Adnan can be seen by his, quote, co-students. McGillivray then asks, was there some kind of event? Tap, tap, tap. And Jay adds, it was track practice, and McGillivray suggests that was to create an alibi. In version one, Jay then goes back to his house until Adnan calls him on the cell phone to pick him up. And in version two, Jay goes to Christy Vincent's house and waits for Adnan to call and pick him up. In version one, then Jay picks Adnan up from school and they go to McDonald's so that Adnan can break his fast. In version two, Jay picks him up, and we learn from the drive-along that he does with the detectives a couple days later, those notes are on the website, titled Jay's Third Interview Notes, that Jay again picks Adnan up from the front of the school. He pulled into the front circle. But this time, they smoke some weed and go to Christie's house rather than McDonald's. No eating, no breaking the fast, none of that this time. In the first interview, he and Adnan are in the process of sitting and eating at McDonald's when the police called Adnan. In the second interview, they're hanging out at Christie's house on the complete other side of town when the police call Adnan. Now, as a side note, Brett and Alice in the prosecution say that Christie was left out of the first version because Jay was protecting her. I just want to point out that that is complete bullshit. First of all, it's now a proven fact that neither Jay nor Adnan went to Christie's at all that day or night. She wasn't even home. Also, the cell records prove it. Remember, Christie was added to the narrative based on McGillivary misplacing a cell tower on the map. But my greater point is that this whole Jay's protecting people narrative is completely laughable. Think about this. We know for a fact they did not go to Christie's that night. But Jay adds her into the story anyway. That would be the exact fucking opposite of protecting her 
and leaving her out so she doesn't have to get involved. She didn't need to be part of the story because she wasn't part of the story, but he made her part of the story. Just like he did when he said that Jen knew Adnan was going to kill Hay ahead of time. Not protecting her. But instead, he's involving these two women in this murder, and for Jen, actually saying that she was a co-conspirator, that she knew ahead of time, in order to protect himself. He's not protecting anybody but Jay. Anyway, after that, in the first version, Jay says that he and Adnan leave McDonald's on Rolling Road after Adcock's call, and they go pick up Hayes' car from the park and ride, then go to his house to get picks and shovels. But then a few seconds later, he says that, no, they left McDonald's and went to his house first to get the picks and shovels, then they went to the park and ride. In the second version, they were never even at McDonald's. They were at Christie's when Adnan talked to Adcock, and after the call, they drove from Christie's to Jay's house. Now, Jay says in this interview that he's being dropped off. He says at one point, he even went inside, then he and Adnan argue. Adnan essentially blackmails Jay into helping bury the body. Then they get the pick and shovel and head back to the park and ride. In the first interview, Jay says Adnan drove him all around. Then they went to Leakin Park. And that part is pretty consistent, just some details change. Adnan's throwing up in one, but not the other. There's snow on the ground in one. And one, Jay sees a blue jacket. In another, Adnan throws the blue jacket. A huge difference is that in the first version, Adnan's throwing up all through the burial process, and there is no phone call. But in the second interview, Adnan answers two calls during the burial. And we haven't discussed this, but Jay says that he learned one of the calls was from Jen, and he says Adnan was speaking Arabic on the second call. Adnan doesn't speak any language but English, by the way. But moving on, in the first interview, they drive all over the place looking for a spot to dump Hay's car. They get separated, and Jay ends up sitting at a McDonald's for 45 minutes before Adnan finally finds him, and then they go ditch the car. In the second interview, they never separate. They drive around. Adnan actually picks a spot, but, oh, sorry, he didn't like that spot, so they move the car to another one. In the first interview, there's no pickup from Jen and no wiping down fingerprints off of shovels. And in the second, there is a pickup from Jen, but it's at Jay's house after Adnan dropped him off. And still no wiping down fingerprints and shovels that night. And of course, you all know that in Jen's version, she picked Jay up at the mall and had a conversation with Adnan during the pickup. Now, you all know most of this, but I think it's important to correct Brett and Alice's nonsense with actual facts. The statement that all Jay did was change a few times in a second interview is laughable and pathetic. If you're looking for another adjective, it's gross. And I can already tell you what the pushback will be from the Adnan is guilty crowd because I've already experienced it on social media. First, they'll tell you that nothing significant changed. Then, when you confront them with the actual facts, they'll shift their argument to none of this matters. They'll minimize and trivialize the changes. I don't care if Adnan went to McDonald's or not. It doesn't matter. Make it just seem like a silly argument. They'll revert back to the prosecutor's idea of a basic story. There was a come-get-me call, they ditched the car, they retrieved the car, buried the body, and ditched the car again. That's the basic story, and that's all that matters. But if that's the case, ask yourself this. If that's all that matters, why did the police interview Jay three times, officially, and even do a drive-along with him if the details of where and when they went didn't matter? 
If it doesn't matter if they went to McDonald's or Christie's, then why spend so much time trying to get it straight? If spending over an hour driving to and from Patapsco and smoking weed didn't matter, then why'd they keep asking about it? Why did the prosecution at trial ask Jay to give all these details if they don't matter? Because they do fucking matter. Jay has to be able to present a series of events that are actually possible. Because remember, his testimony, his evidence is conflicted by every other single witness from that school that day. Everyone interviewed that saw Adnan or saw Hay or saw both of them saw them in separate locations going different directions. We have all the evidence that Adnan was at track practice on time. Jay's story aims to discount all of that evidence. And if he's going to do that, he has to do it by presenting an actual narrative, an actual story that fits with the actual evidence. It has to be possible. That's why the prosecution kept digging into it and trying to create a narrative that was possible. It does matter. And we haven't really discussed this today because we've already covered it ad nauseum, but the fact is that none of these versions are actually possible. None of them. None of the timing works. Ritz and McGillivary are desperately trying to make the routes and experiences fit the call log, but the problem is that the call log itself disproves the entire theory. Jay isn't forgetting times, and he certainly didn't forget where he was when he saw a dead body in a trunk. He didn't mistake standing on a corner and having an argument so loud that it was drawing the attention of bystanders with standing alone in a remote part of a Best Buy parking lot on the other side of town with no one around. He didn't confuse sitting at McDonald's eating a Big Mac when the police called with sitting on the other side of town at Christie's house on the couch when they called. And he wasn't protecting Christie. He added her into the story unnecessarily when he was told to. This entire episode of the prosecutors is one of their worst and most egregious. They are either the absolute worst, most ignorant lawyers on the planet, if after all their time and research, they think that all Jay did was change a few times, or they're actually very intelligent and good at their jobs, and they just have no morals and made a conscious effort to lie and manipulate hundreds of thousands of people for clicks and ad dollars. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production. All music for the show is created and composed by Shane Yoder at PutThemInASong.com. The font you see on all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com Design Created manages and maintains our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our volunteer transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Courtney Wimberly, Erica Cantor, Melissa Cardenas, Kaywood Yomnick, and Danielle Rohr. And as always, thank you to all of you for your engagement and your support. If you like the show and you want to support us, you can do that in a number of ways. The number one way for you to support our work is to become a patron at patreon.com slash truthandjustice. 
If you join our Patreon, not only will you be financially supporting our work, but you'll also get something for your pledge. For just $5 per month, you'll get all episodes ad-free and also a video version of the Friday follow-ups that include an hour-long pre-show chat exclusive to our patrons. Other levels will get you a Truth and Justice Army t-shirt, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host a Friday follow-up episode. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice to sign up. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. It doesn't cost you a penny, and it goes a long way towards making the show more visible. If you have a case that you'd like us to consider covering, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page, follow us on Instagram, or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at truthjusticepod, and I can be found on social media at Truth. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.